Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. This is session six of our series in fasting, and it's actually part two of session six, which is entitled Apostolic, Prophetic Prayer, and Fasting. And we're looking at principles of fasting um, from the case study of Nehemiah. Um, I spoke to you last week how that Nehemiah's fast was kingdom-related in that it was focused upon issues that are beyond himself, beyond the immediacy of his own personal needs. He's intensely concerned about the state of Jerusalem. He's the king's cupbearer. Uh, in Persia, he's serving a Persian king, and uh, he inquires as to the state of Jerusalem, which is depictive of the contemporary church. So Jerusalem back then, for us, is an indication of the modern-day church. And the state of Jerusalem is described as, the walls are broken and the gates are burned. The people are in great distress and they're living in reproach. He said, when I heard this, I sat, I wept, and I mourned for, for many days. The fact that Jerusalem, a representation of the church, was not accurately represented or representative of the Lord in its day, depressed Nehemiah. For him... He could not continue with business as usual. It affected him so deeply, he could not pretend on the next occasion before he came, uh, when he came before the king. His countenance was sad. Um, he, he, he fasted for many days. He prayed for many days. His prayer actually was over a period of four months, and it really affected him deeply. And I encouraged us all last week that the things that burden God must start to burden us. When we look at the state of the corporate church, or the state of the local church, or your state of you, because you are the church. So the church in its representation starts in its microcosm with the individual, then to the family of church that you belong to, like this is a local family, church, the state of this church. Then there's the church in the city, there's one church in every city. And then also you might belong as a church, a spiritual family, along with other families, to a clan like we do. Gate Ministries Durban Central is part of a clan headed by Apostle Tamo Naidu. That clan is made up of spiritual families like this one over the face of the whole earth. So there's that representation of the church. And obviously... Um, Various clans will constitute tribes. Now, we're not there yet. A tribe comes together. Then groups of tribes come together, constitute the global church, the church in the year. Amen? So, your concern as to what is the state of the church? When I say that, what is the state of the church? 
You must apply that to yourself, personally. Apply that to your family, biologically, your immediate family. Apply that to this spiritual house, this local church, to which you are a member. Apply that to the clan to which you belong. Apply that to the tribe to which the clan belongs. Apply that to the representation of the global church in the entire earth. Now, you can't think that far. So all I'm asking you is apply these principles right now to your life, personally, and perhaps to this local corporate church, this local church. So ask your neighbor, what is the state of the church? What is the state of the church? Before you answer, make it personal. Ask them, how are you? Before we get there, how are you? Because you are the church, Keegan. You are the church, Jaden. You are the church, Joash. You are the church, Newman. Oji, you are the church. Ma, you are the church. Ants, you are the church. How are you doing? How are your walls and how are your gates? Hmm? The walls speak of obedience. The gates speak of authority. If your walls are broken, you can't hang gates. Gates hang on walls. If your obedience is lacking, gates which represent authority, your authority is undermined in the realms of the spirit. What gives you authority in spiritual things is your levels of obedience. Poor obedience means poor authority. And I want to encourage you to to exercise and complete your obedience. 2 Corinthians 10 says, You will be able to punish all other disobedience when your obedience is complete. So God always needs, listen carefully, the representation of completed obedience before He uses that as the measure by which He punishes all other disobedience. God has got, the, has got no right, listen carefully, God has got no right to judge disobedience if there hasn't been a people in the earth that has become the standard of obedience. So Paul says, when, you, when your obedience is complete, then you'll be able to judge all other disobedience. Why was Israel released after 430 years in Egyptian slavery? I told you when we did the series towards the end of last year on the firstborn and Passover principles, I said there were at least four factors. Remember there was a prophecy given to Abraham, right? There was a prophecy given to him that your descendants would come out out of 400 years of Egyptian bondage, remember? There was the preparation of Moses, 40 years prepared in Egypt's court, 40 years prepared at the backside of the, of the wilderness, right? Um, there was the cry of the, of the nation, right? What did God say? I will deliver my people. Why? Because I have heard their cry, right? And thirdly, listen carefully, this, fourthly, there's this fourth factor that somehow people miss. And it says in Genesis 15, when God prophesies to Abram, your descendants will be um, in prison for 400 years in a land. But it says, after 400 years, what does God say? I will bring them out. Why will I bring them out at that time? God in his mind is going to make sure at that time, Moses has been already prepared for 80 years. Moses is ready. At that time, you would have been crying so vociferously to me to let you, to let you go. I would hear that cry. Right? I have a prophecy given to my servant Abraham. 
But the fourth thing that God mentions, God says, for by that time, the sins of the Amorite nations would have matured. Question. So God cannot deal, now Amorites is a generic term for Canaanites. Remember, God would lead his people from Egypt to dispossess and to fight and take the land back. Remember, Moses dies, Joshua would eventually do this. Remember? So God is saying, you are being released because where you are going to, the sins in those nations have reached boiling point. Sin is maturing, but I can't send you not being the representation of obedience. You have to complete your obedience before you judge disobedience. So God is saying to this company, you know, I've been hearing the Lord saying some, some serious things to my own heart. God is saying, Randolph, the reason why I'm so particular with you in this season, the reason why I cannot wink at what you would do and, and think it innocuous and innocent in one season, but now in this season you can't afford that. Why? I need to erect within you such a standard of righteousness and obedience. For by that standard, I, God, through you, will judge or other representations of disobedience. Hmm? Yes. Do you understand this? It's serious, brethren. It's very serious. You cannot afford to fail now. You cannot afford to fail now. God told me, you will judge my house. God told me, you will judge my house. This was given to Joshua the high priest, remember? I'll cause you to walk amongst those. Forget the verse. Right? I want to encourage you. Nehemiah has got this burden to rebuild the walls. But let me just say this. You cannot go to rebuild if you are not built yourself. Do you remember even Moses, when he thought he was ready? He went to finally go to approach Pharaoh. And the Bible says, and God met him halfway to kill him. Why kill a man after taking 80 years to prepare him? Why will God, why was God, please tell your neighbors, God is very serious. Very serious. God could have overlooked, and the Bible says because Moses forgot to circumcise his sons. The two sons. His wife, Zipporah, thank God for her, She stepped in. She intervenes just before God meets Moses to kill him. Moses would have been wiped out. Tell your neighbor you're not indispensable to God's purposes. I'm telling you, if you mess up, God will simply say, no problem. Step aside. My purpose is too great. You know, I often think about that. God, why will you want to kill Moses? You took 40 years to put him in Pharaoh's courts. To, to teach him protocol of the Egyptians. You took 40 years putting him in the wilderness to teach him how to survive in the wilderness because that is the domain in which he will lead Israel for 40 years. Hmm? Why after all of that you're going to kill the man? God says he failed to circumcise his sons. Eli did the same thing, remember? Eli failed to circumcise or to correct Hophni and Phineas, and please, brethren, hear my heart. I'm not being hard for being hard's sake. I'm being serious to represent God accurately before you. Right? 
God said to Eli, you honor your sons more than you honor me. Right? The glory will depart. Right? And I want to encourage you that uh, circumcision by fathers of sons is a necessary spiritual activity. Very, very necessary in the house of God. And I want to encourage you, maintain your walls, church. Maintain your levels of obedience at all costs so that your gates of authority can hang and you can be a person of authentic and credible authority in the Spirit. I'm not talking about parading and posturing and saying things, empty words, from empty spirits, released from empty mouths, but a person full of substance, a spirit full of word, spirit prayerful, baptizing prayer, praying always with all prayer, for all the saints, praying without ceasing. I need an army. I don't need civilians. I told you in the email before you came here. I don't need civilians together. Second Timothy, Paul wrote to his son. He says, civilians take care of matters secular. But he who is in the army seeks to please the commander in chief. You know, for an army, it's not for, for, for a soldier in the army, it's never business as usual. It says he does not engage himself with secular affairs. Right? But he might seek to serve him that is in charge. Therefore, he says, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus. Amen? Tell you never endure hardness. You know, can we take you to the trenches? Can we take you to the front line? Can we take you as the reconnaissance force? Can we take you as the A-team? Can we put you in the front? Um, what are we able to effect in the kingdom? What kind of personnel do we have? What are we building? Who can we take where to which nation if the need comes up? Right? It, 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 is, it is not wise for a commander-in-chief to place his most inexperienced, inept, untrained person right in the front line of the battle. Right? But for strategic, serious uh, military engagements, they have task forces. They have special forces. Right? They have um, people highly skilled. SWAT team, A team. What else are they called? MI5, KGB, Delta Force, Scorpions. Okay, not, maybe not Scorpions now. Right? Hawks. Right? But people whose skill um, for a specific task is far more superior than the ordinary person engaged in police or military. And I want to encourage you, God is about upgrading our skill. I read a verse to you. Um, this is on point one under factors to consider. Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight: like a city that is broken down, broken into, and without walls, is a man who has no control over his spirit. I want to say that again. Listen carefully. Like a city that is broken into, and without walls, is a man who has no control over his spirit. No control of your spirit speaks to indiscipline. You cannot discipline your life. If you are ill-disciplined, Ill undisciplined, essentially you have broken walls and you are vulnerable. 
But once you have a, a measure of discipline in your life, discipline is one of the fruits of the Spirit, it's self-control, um, then symbolically in the Spirit, your walls are erected high and the enemy does not have ease to attack you because you're a person of regulation. you circumspect, you ordered, you manage things well, you're disciplined. Even in terms of time management, the way you discipline your television watching, kind of websites you browse, the kind of people you, you, you befriend. You are highly disciplined. And the person that is not disciplined is like a city who's been broken into, right? Its walls are broken. A man that has got no control over his, over his spirit. Last week also we looked at the prayer of Nehemiah. And because of time, I don't want to rehearse that. The storm looks like it's brewing and increasing outside. I want to quickly go to point four in your notes. Prayer opens up avenues and opportunities for restoration. Nehemiah prayed with fasting. And I simply love this verse we're about to talk about because I've known it for ages, but I've never seen it in this light. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says the following. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Look at the verse slowly. Don't worry about the notes. I'll explain it to you in my own words. Look at, read the verse again. It says this about Jesus. Listen carefully. He is able to save. Everyone say able to save. My question is, why is he able to save? It says, since. The word since means because. Why is he able to save? It says since or because he always lives. To do what? To make intercession. Salvation is part of his mandate. Salvation is part of the, the assignment of our Lord. He saves. That's what Jesus does. That's why when you're working on a computer, on a document, you must save regularly. Because that's what Jesus does. <laughs> it was a joke if you didn't get it. Right? Save regularly. Because Jesus does that. Jesus saves. And it says he's able to save. Why? Because he lives to do what? Pray. My thing is, the person who prays opens up an avenue for God to use in the very salvation and the restoration the redemption of the thing for which you are praying. You cannot be used to save a person or a thing if they don't burden you in prayer. Amen? So why does he, why is he able to save? He's able to save because he ever lives to make intercession. Amen? Has somebody, a circumstance or a situation burdened you recently? Yeah? Have you been burdened by something? I've been burdened by a host of things this particular, this, this particular week. At times it gets to me. I have to manage my emotions. I have to ensure that I don't allow depression to settle. I have to judge and, and weigh it from my spirit and not from the vantage point of my soul. And I pray for, for people. And it burdens me. And you know what? For me, that is the first port of call to be used by God to redeem the situation. You cannot, you, sh you should not have any right 
to minister to anybody you're not willing to pray for. If you're willing to pray for the person, God will empower you to use you to redeem the person. So the first port of call for you to to remedy a situation that really hurts you, you're concerned about the person or the situation, I would say immerse yourself in prayer for the thing that you seek to redeem. And God will open up an avenue for you. In fact, your prayer is your empowerment to do. Don't seek to do without praying. Amen? Because in prayer, I believe, you see, he took four months. Tell you never, in case you didn't know. Four, to tell him four months is a long time. That's a long time. A month is at least 30 days. 30 di- times four is 120. This guy prays. We often don't think of it. eh? This guy prays for 120 days. 120 days. It's a long time. 120 days is an apostolic number as well. Amen. But for the thing that he prays for, he is used by God to redeem. Amen. The thing in which he prays for is used by God to redeem. And then... The fifth point about Nehemiah's example is this. Praying always without ceasing. Praying always without ceasing. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 4 and 5. Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. That I may rebuild it. He's before the king and his countenance is sad. And the king asks, what do you want? What do you request? And before he answers, he said, so I pray to the God of heaven. That doesn't mean he took time out to say, before I answer you, O king, give me time to pray. He was so immersed in the spirit of prayer that prayer prompted his response to the king. Do you understand? This is what I call almost reflexive prayer. There was no time to set aside a season of prayer or prayer time after the king asked this question, what do you want? I believe he answered immediately because did he really have to pray about things? Had he not been praying for four months? And isn't this an obvious answer to prayer? When a Persian king asks you, ask me anything, you, you got it. What do you want? Most of us would think, wow, God, you answered me. This is what I've been praying for all along. Right? Even when it seems like an answer to prayer is the obvious breakthrough you would expect, always learn the principle of being cautious in how you answer. Learn it. So in between, before he answers, he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. I believe it was almost like a second. And so the Persian king says, what do you want? I believe he answered immediately. But between the, the question and the answer, in between you have the statement, so I pray to the God of heaven. Right? This guy was so immersed in prayer. He, was, he knew what, 
Thessalonians speak about praying without ceasing. He knew what it is to, to Ephesians 6, 18, praying always with all, prayer in the Spirit for all people. He knew what it is to pray constantly, to pray consistently. And you know that in a normal day, whether you're at college, whether you're at school, you can train your spirit to always pray. You can be actually engaging in work, but in your spirit, you're in contact with the Lord. Okay? And even in the normality of life, you're engaging normal things. And even when someone perhaps asks you a question, and you, but your response is birthed out of a spirit that is in contact with God, always bathed in the spirit of, of prayer. And I want to encourage you, this was a feature of Nehemiah's life. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Point number six. Living in the spirit of martyrdom and self-sacrifice. Living in the spirit of martyrdom and self-sacrifice. Nehemiah's occupation was the, he was the king's cupbearer. The cupbearers in that economy taste all the king's beverages before he would take it, just in case it was poisoned. <laughs> Who would like that job? <laughs> okay. So when I say he lives in a spirit of martyrdom, martyrdom is when you are prepared to lay your life down for a cause. Even in his secular vocation, he lives with a constant threat of death, literally every time he serves the king. Right? He lives in this culture. You know what? God needs a man like that to build a wall. God needs a man like that who does not count his life dear unto himself to make the necessary sacrifices to get to Jerusalem and to endure hardness in the task of rebuilding the wall. Because as Fiona read, um, I've, I've done a, a, a study on Nehemiah, which I've typed out. Some of you have it. I've emailed it to the church some time ago, which I need to revisit. But if you look at that study... You would see how that the enemies that Nehemiah confronts grow incrementally from chapter to chapter. It's like one person, then another, just Tobias, Sanballat, then others, then Gershon, the Arab, joins forces. And there's some other people that come. And it's almost like the nearer the building process um, nears completion, the stronger the opposition grows. Now, you don't need a weakling building the wall. You, you need a man that is prepared to die for the task. And you know the people build with trowel in one hand and a spear in the other. Building and fighting. Amen. I, I want to encourage you. Do you count your life dear unto yourself? Are you prepared to make the ultimate sacrifice in the service of your king? For some people, just a matter of convenience is too much of an issue. Never mind laying down your life. Right? Just a matter of if, if we step on people's convenience, if it's inconvenient for you, it's a big issue. If that is the case, we are nowhere near living like Nehemiah did. And I want to encourage you, it's time to make greater sacrifices. Tell your neighbor greater sacrifices. Really, brethren, I say this sincerely with all of my heart. There's no sacrifice I would not personally make to fulfill God's will, especially the, the dimensions of His will vested within our spiritual Father. 
Um, for me, it's just, I want to be said of me one day when I come before the Lord in glory. You must say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've contributed globally to this, you must look this, this, this. You had a part, even a small part, but you played a role in ensuring that my will thrives successfully. Can that be said of us? Amen? Well done. And not well done as in, how do you like your meat? Medium rare, well done. You mustn't be finished by the time you get there. Well done. You must not be done. What you did must be well done. Amen? I want to encourage you. It's sort of, I live, I live my life to do God's will. Nothing is more important to me right now. I'm not getting any younger. So I've said to the Lord, the rest of my days are yours. I've served you from my youth this way. And I want to intensify my willingness to lay down my life just so that your will can be done. Amen? So tell your neighbor greater sacrifices. Okay, next point. I'm going to rush through so we can conclude. Point number seven, working within the prescribed, divinely determined time frames. Now, let me explain this my way. Listen carefully. The king asked him, no problem, I'll, you can have a leave of absence from my courts. Go to Jerusalem and rebuild its wall. And the king asked him, how long will you be? When are you coming back? How long will you be? In other words, the king was filling out his leave forms. You know when you work, you have leave forms. So Nehemiah, off. Oh, by the way, Bru, how long will you be? And by the way, when are you coming back? Right? I suppose he answered him. Nehemiah took 52 days to build the wall. That's just under two months. And he actually stayed on uh, to address some other civil and spiritual matters in Israel after the wall was rebuilt. Right? But my point is this. There was the expectation of a time frame imposed upon the mandate. Right? I don't know if you are getting restless, but I'm extremely restless in my spirit. But the fact that certain matters in our prophetic registry remain outstanding. Hmm? And I'm saying, God, when, Lord? How long? Remember Taylor McCalvin, how long? When will you, when will we see some of the things we're trusting you for? Um, Roland called Renee in the week. And she was, gave a very encouraging word and just a whole spirit. And she said this to her. It sounds like, to me, she said this to Renee. It sounds like that you guys are on the verge of some breakthrough. And there was a tremendous word of encouragement to my own heart. Amen. Tell your neighbor we are on the verge of some breakthrough. I know in my spirit. And I know God's going to come through in a significant way uh, for the things that we are trusting him for. But I want to encourage you to put your hands to the plow and build with us. They said, let us arise and build. Not let us sleep and build. You can't sleep and build. You have to arise and build. Building requires an erect, upright position. Vigilance and your way of putting your hands to the plow and what is to be done. But listen carefully. You see, Nehemiah doesn't go willy-nilly. He goes with a time frame in his mind. He goes and he's prepared to work, not wasting one day. He goes with the mindset, I need to finish. I'm accountable to my boss, the Persian king. 
More so, I'm accountable to my God who has burdened me with this mandate. I need to finish the task in the required time frame. Now, listen to me. In John chapter 9, you can read this when you get home. Jesus healed a man from blindness. The man was blind from birth. Remember the story? And the Lord opened his eyes. And Jesus, in the midst of that parable, makes this powerful statement. He says, we must work the works of him while it is yet day. For the night comes when no man can work. Now that statement is said smack bang within the context of him healing a blind man of his blindness. The thing is, if you're working, if it's night, you're blind and you can't see, therefore you can't work. If it's day, you can see, therefore you can do work. Right? Now, it's all about your sight. Everyone say your sight. It's all about your sight. Right? What do you see? Now, if you are worried about the moat in your brother's eye and you're not concerned about or the speck in your brother's eye, and you're not concerned about the moat in your, in your own eye, then you are working in the night. Then it's night time for you. You are blind in the spirit. The prophetic application of that passage is this. If how I view people, because remember the man said, I see men as trees. Remember he said, I see men as trees. If my perspective of people in my world is jaundiced, if my view of them is less than what God expects me to have, if I'm judging people incorrectly, let's say, I'm viewing people wrongly, I'm judging people accurately, then you are in the night and you can't work. But if, you know, that whole passage in John 9 boils down to this. If you can have the proper estimate of all relationships from as though God and be accurate as having God's view and perception of all men. Then you're living in the day. If you can see men as God sees them. If you, you mustn't live in bitterness, in unforgiveness, in, in anger. Some people are so tight and so taut in the spirit, so strongly wound up. How are you going to handle spiritual work with that kind of internal state? Your experience is night. And I would say John 9, 4 applies to you. That you can't do apostolic work. Because the whole of John 9 is about the pool of Siloam. It's about apostolic mission. It's about apostolic work. Apostolic work can only be done in the day. And the people who live in the day are people whose perspective of others is spiritual, is accurate. Amen? So, are you ready? Ask your neighbor, are you in the night or are you in the day? Hmm? You are in the night if your eyes in blindness, if you can't see the image of God in your brother. Remember last week I told you two big questions God asked humankind or mankind. First question, he asked Adam, where are you? Second question, he asked um, Cain who killed Abel. Remember Cain killed Abel? And God comes to Cain and says, where is your brother? Now, when God asks questions, we must take note. So the two questions are, where are you and where is your brother? The, 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 the principle is, you can't locate your brother if you yourself are lost. Where are you? Find yourself in reference to your relationship with me, 
when that is restored, you'll be able to see and appraise your brother in the spirit of love, of empathy, and value him for what he represents. You are your brother's keeper. Only then, let me just say, I can't stress this enough. If I can stop here and go home, and if you can get this and live it and do it, I'll be the happiest pastor in Durban. Right? If you can show me, brethren, how you love everyone, never mind out there, start here. Everyone you love, esteem, and respect sincerely from your heart. I would say you are in the day now, and now you are ready to do apostolic work. But you can't do apostolic work if you're living in the night, in the night season. Amen? So I want to encourage you. I want my experience, my spatial sphere of existence to be day consistently, day continually. Amen? Hallelujah. Tell your neighbor, become a day walker. (laughs) Hallelujah. Okay, let's push on. I like um, this next issue, the issue of unhindered passage and protection and immunity. You know what, Nehemiah, let's read the scripture. Nehemiah 2, 7 and 8. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. What he asked the Persian king, you know, he was, he was in Persia, it's way up north. Uh, Canaan, Israel, Jerusalem is way down towards the south, uh, the southwestern part. Right? It was a long, yet to traverse through several provinces governed by several heathen foreign kings. He was concerned as to his safety. Okay, he's saying to the king, you let me go, it's fine, I'm going to go. But in my journey there, won't you please give me letters with your seal on so when I pass through the other countries or other provinces and they harass me, all I do is I show them your seal. If they touch me, they know who they're dealing with. I have the protection of a mighty Persian empire behind me. Hmm? So God gives him, through the, the support of a Persian king, Im- support, protection, immunity. So what does Nehemiah have? He has unhindered passage. Free passage to go and do the work. Do you know the scripture in um, Matthew 28, and lo, I'll be with you until the ends of the earth, or the ends of the world. Right? Matthew 28 is owned that promise that, lo- that has the assurance of God's presence. When does God give you the lo, I am with you always? When? What's the preview? What's the context before that? Go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations, right? Preach, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Teaching them all things whatsoever I've commanded you, and lo, I will be with you. People take that scripture and they misquote it. Jesus said, lo, I is with me until the end. No, he is with those that are fulfilling the commission until the end of the age. Don't take the scripture and misapply it. That's why there's no place on the earth we're not willing to go because in our going we are short of immunity and protection. We may have to suffer trial on occasion, like Paul did. Paul suffered trial and tribulation in many of his journeys. We may have to suffer for his name's sake, but there's no sacrifice too big that we're not willing to make to ensure that purpose is done. You know what? 
I feel we must break the spirit of fear that some of you have. Some of you are afraid to take decisions financially. You're afraid to take decisions in terms of the measure of support you give to the, congreg- to, 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 to the ministry. You're afraid to embark, some of you, even to open up a business. Let me just say this. If you perceive that it's God's will for you to do a particular thing, and that thing has got a kingdom purpose behind it, in your pursuit of it, God will protect you. In your pursuit of it, God will give you immunity. So long as it's kingdom-oriented, as long as it's purpose-driven, as long as it, it captures God's essence and heart, God will give you immunity. That's a prophetic word for some of you. Tell your neighbor, do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Go for it. Do not fear. And then, I think it's the last point, the provision for the task. You know this guy, Nehemiah, he's so daring. He doesn't only ask for letters to give him protection. He says, oh, by the way, while I'm on this roll, and while your benevolence and kindness is extended to me, O king, he says in verse 8, please give me a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber and make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them, because the good hand of my God was upon me. I just love that. The good hand of my God was upon me. He was going to rebuild. And all he asks, he says, give me provision. Give me all the resources I need for the task. All the materials, give me a letter, open-ended letter, open check to whatever I need for the task. Right? The keep of your resources, the keep of your forest, I want a letter. Right? You know, the Lord's been calling, asking me subtly to be discerning as to when to ask. Because Nehemiah asked. Sometimes it's not sufficient just to pray. He prayed for four months and being guided by the Lord when an opportunity presented itself, he asked a person of influence for resources. He was bold enough not just to ask for protection, but he said, give me every single resource I would need. You know, in modern construction sites today, there are some building delays because of resource delays. Ever, ever been there? Okay. Nehemiah had not one day's delay because of a lack of resource. The only delay came because of potential opposition. But there was no delay because um, Coral Brick did not deliver the bricks. Right? The dagger, the cement, we're still waiting, guys. Just hold on, have a break. I, I just picture the scene. He had ample, more than enough, to take care of the project. Right? And there was no delay. Amen? 